I'm wondering if you uh, have been noticing some trends in the world over the last, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years? <laughs> but seeming to be accelerating in some ways recently where, and we experience this in some ways different here than in other parts of the country, but there seems to be that when I was growing up, even I believe in many parts of New England, there were plenty of people who were not Christians. They didn't necessarily disbelieve in God, but they weren't committed to Jesus Christ. And they basically saw the church as a helpful and useful uh, resource in society, right? And maybe they grew up going to church, and maybe they didn't like it all that much, but at least they didn't hate it. They may have hated going, but they didn't hate the church itself. And then even the people who really were committed uh, atheists, committed uh, disbelievers in God, oftentimes... Uh, because of the culture around them, there was a fairly muted opposition to the church. And you might get people here and there who, you know, oh, we shouldn't have prayer in schools, and so the laws are changed about prayer in schools. Or, oh, we shouldn't have, um, uh, you know, you think of the different uh, laws that have shifted around culture that aren't specific to the church, but it's kind of like how the influence of the church affects society, Right? But what it seems to me is that there's been this increase in not only laws that affect the culture, affect the church's influence on the culture, but laws about the church itself. And so you may have heard, there's been this, this has been going on for a while, every year there's kind of a cry to change the tax code so that churches don't get tax-exempt status, for example. So I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but you know, this property the building next door, and then the house that we live in are all owned by the church. And those pro- these properties are not taxed by the city of Dedham. They're not taxed by the state of Massachusetts, the, the federal government. When we purchase things, we don't pay tax on things we purchase. Uh, when you guys give, if you itemize on your income taxes, then you get a deduction for your giving. And then when... If the church were to ever uh, make a profit, we're a nonprofit organization, but sometimes we, by the grace of God, in the year in the black, <laughs> and we don't pay taxes on that. And so you imagine, uh, what would happen if that were to shift? You know, I don't know what the tax would be on these three properties annually, but for, you know, I actually, because we live in that house, we don't pay property taxes, but you guys do, and you could probably guess what the property taxes would be on these three properties, or taxes would be on all the money that you give as a gift to the, to the church and to the ministry of the kingdom here. Uh, you can imagine what it might do uh, for churches across the country. I imagine many, 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 many churches who have been struggling would finally close their doors, would finally be forced out of their properties, and those properties would be sold and For all practical purposes, those places, those physical places would be lost for the kingdom forever until Jesus returns and lays hold and claim to every square inch of this planet. But that's not, and, and that call for that to happen gets bigger and louder and has more people claiming it every year, just so you know. And then we increasingly see people who want to pass laws, not only to impact the influence of the church on society, but they want to pass laws to influence uh, what churches can do 
and what churches can be. Um, we have seen calls for, uh, um, for political reasons to prevent churches from being not... Churches, to keep their tax-exempt status, cannot endorse candidates, but they can, they can promote ideas related to their faith that impact politics. And, you know, there are all sorts of ideas about how and whether churches should be involved in politics, but I will tell you this. The kingdom of God is a politic. It has a leader, a king, who is a political leader as well as a spiritual leader. It has... It has um, uh, very porous borders, but the outposts of that kingdom are the churches around the world. And, and it has a law. It has a legal code. And even though the relationship with Christians and the law is different from the relationship with the Israelites and the law, there is still a law of Christ. And that's a legal code. So that's political. Christianity is, by definition, political. And when in the Bible, when they say Jesus is Lord... That was a political statement in contrast to the overarching and required claim of everyone in the, in the Roman Republic that Caesar is Lord. So we think when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he's God. What the early Christians were saying is Jesus is king or Jesus is emperor. You see, these are inherently political claims. And so the world wants to silence the church. But then it goes beyond that because there are already places in the world where certain teachings from this book are considered hate speech and are outlawed. And there have been attempts to do that here as well. Now, why do I tell you all this? Uh, because I want you to feel really sad when you go home today. No, no, that's not it at all. I actually hope you feel very encouraged when you go home today. But to be alert to the dangers that lurk, the dangers that are, that are at our doorstep, and I read a really interesting article this last week uh, that talked about how there is an increasing, or as a week ago, this increasing um, idea among many in our country that our nation could be split and divided geographically. And basically what it looks like is there is in the south a lot of conservatives, on the coasts and in the north a lot of progressives, and that they don't see this a lot, on both sides, a lot of people no longer see this as a cohesive nation. Um, well, it would be interesting to note that uh, Christianity, which is by nature, and, and hear me out when I say this, because we use the word conservative often in political ways, but conservative is not ultimately a political term. We are by nature conserving people, right? We're, by nature, we're ones who look back to the past to inform the present and the future. Uh, and so while there are ways that Christians are and have been and will continue to be progressive, again, not in a political sense, but just moving things forward, we always do it informed by what's come from the past. And so by nature, this is a conservative movement, if you will. Uh, again, not to dis, uh, confuse that with the political way we use it politically. And we live in, in a place that if that were to ever happen, and I pray to God it doesn't, I don't think it needs to, I don't think it should, I don't think that would be good, I don't think it's inevitable at all. But we would, we would be in, geographically in the place that would oppose conserving things like this, probably. And I think we all sense a lot of that, right? That time may never come in our lifetime. 
It may never come in our children's lifetime. It may never come in our grandchildren's lifetime. And Jenny just celebrated the first birthday of her great-grandson. It may never happen in his lifetime. But it could happen really soon also. And we don't know. And the thing is, the Bible encourages us to be prepared. To be prepared for whatever comes. And here's the other great thing. Christianity was not founded, it was not built, it was not expanded under a friendly empire. It did all these things in the midst of persecution, in the midst of legal uh, suppression, and in the midst of a society and a culture that was, I would say, violently opposed to the truth of Scripture and to the truth of Jesus and to the gospel that he brought and the kingdom that he ushered in. And of course, it goes back way before Jesus. So how do we respond to the culture we're in now, to the culture that may come in our lifetime, and how do we prepare our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren for the society that they may live in in the future? And we've been talking about this idea of faith in action. And last week, we looked at the book of Daniel in the first couple of chapters and saw that, that they were given these tests um, the one test was, will you be faithful in the day-to-day living out of your faith? You know, would they, would, would uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four young men stolen from Judah, from, from noble and high uh, families who showed promise for learning and education and, and were capable and, and good-looking and all these wonderful things they had going for them, they were stolen away. Would they follow the law of God? Would they eat the foods they were commanded by God to eat? Which is just a representation of, would they hold fast to their faith in an aggressive and not only foreign, but contrary culture to the one they'd grown up in? And then they were asked this uh, second test of, would they apply themselves and become capable, responsible, trustworthy men who could, uh, who could not only do their jobs well, but give a good testimony to the God of Israel, to the God who created the universe, the God that they put their faith in. And then finally, would they be willing to kind of speak truth to power? Would they be willing to honor God in a hostile environment? And what we saw is that through Daniel, he and his friends were able to do all three of those things very well. Now, when you do those things very well, what you do is you find in a hostile environment is that you create enemies. And so we see two stories in the book of Daniel about creating enemies because of your faithfulness, right? Now, we can read in the book, I think it's First Peter, where he says, it's no good to have people hate you because you do wrong. But if they hate you because you do good, that's, a, that's actually a blessing, and he talks about why that is. So we're not talking about getting enemies because you're a jerk, okay? So if you say, oh, Pastor Stephen told me that, you know, I'm, I'm going to have enemies. And, and yeah, I'm mean to all these people. And now I have all these enemies. Just what he predicted, the word of God is true. Praise the Lord. No. If you're mean, if you're inconsistent, if you don't do what you say you're going to do, if you, you know, if you, are, if you are going to work and doing poor work, all these things, and then you have people trying to come against you, that's on you, right? But if in your faithfulness you find you have enemies, then there's a word from the Lord for you today, and that's what we're going to look at. So if you would turn to Daniel chapter 3, 
We're going to look at three, and if we have time and I have energy, we'll go to Daniel chapter 6 as well, because there's these two stories that basically have, they're parallel to one another, they're almost identical in their and how they play out and almost identical and what God does, a lesson that he has for us. And if you've been to Sunday school, you know both of them. One is about those three faithful friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who get thrown in a fiery furnace. Sorry for the spoiler. And the other is Daniel in the lion's den. Right? And we know these stories if we've been around the church. But in verse, uh, chapter 3 of Daniel, we read this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Um, probably made of wood and then covered in gold because a pure gold 90-foot-high statue doesn't work. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So if you remember our maps, this was modern-day Iraq. This is along the, the Euphrates River and it is the capital of the kingdom of Babylon. Um, and this is where, when the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Israel, <coughs> specifically Judah, the name of that southern kingdom, and this is where they took everyone that they took. And then he summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every, la of every language. Remember, they've been essentially kidnapping people from all the lands they conquered, taking the best and the brightest and bringing them to work for the king. So he says... Um, nations and people of every language. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the, hor the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers or some Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. By the way, Jew is the word in English for people from Judah. You know, just a little historical tidbit. So the northern tribes, the ten tribes in the north, have kind of been lost to history. And it's the tribe of Judah that has survived intact and that's why we use the word Jew to describe people from Israel today because they're from Judah, the tribe of Judah. So they denounced the Jews and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And then whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, by the way, this image that he set up was probably an idol of the god Nebu, 
Nebu is the god of Babylon, and that's where Nebuchadnezzar gets his name. He is essentially, he has uh, made himself, he's positioned himself as the son of the god of Babylon. And so, and, and here he is, he set up this idol, and this idol represents all of his power, his political power, represents his military might, it represents Babylon itself. So this is not just a religious claim or a religious moment where these three young men are defying uh, some kind of religious and spiritual and, and, you know, uh, theological complaint they have by not bowing. They're doing all that and they're saying, we defy the authority of your kingdom. We oppose the nature of your rule. And these are men serving in his government. Okay? It's a big deal. This is why we see in verse 13 that he is furious with rage. These are men that he has put in power. Men that he has lifted up. Men that he has stood behind in their leadership and their governing of his empire. And they're refusing to bow down to the very image of his might and power. So verse 13, he's furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's called foreshadowing. That's a leading question. What kind of God do you think you have, young men? Do you think that your God is bigger, badder, and better than my God? And here's how the ancient world thought of these things. The god Nebu was the god of Babylon, and Babylon defeated Israel or Judah, so the god of Nebu must be more powerful than the god of Judah. Just makes sense, right? And Nebuchadnezzar knows that they know that their god has already lost to his god. That's how he's thinking. So what are they, who do they think they are? Trusting in some other god who obviously doesn't have the power to even protect his own people against Nebuchadnezzar and against Nebu. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They said, don't waste your time with another test. We'll just tell you straight up what we're going to do. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You know, there's a couple of things about that verse, those two verses that really strike me as incredibly important for us. One is about the nature of faith. It's about the nature of faith. You know, I think that uh, sometimes we believe that the only way to display faith 
is to say what God will do. Right? You know, God will do this. And if I doubt that he'll do it, then I'm doubting God. But they say, God can do this, but he might not. Right? You know, one of the, one of the really important things about Christianity and about, the, you know, and even Judaism is that we serve a God who is greater than we are, right? And so we don't actually get to decide what he's going to do. God alone reserves the right to do what he will do. And there's verses in the Bible that say things like this. I'll I'll love who I love. I'll hate who I hate. I'll bless who I want. I'll curse who I want. Uh, You know, he reserves the right to choose. What faith is, is saying that what God has said he will do, I believe he will do. And what God says he will do is he doesn't say that he will save every person who is being persecuted physically. But what he does say is that he will be with you no matter what. And that no matter what happens to you, that he still has you. Because remember, for God, the story doesn't end when the blood stops coursing through your veins. The story doesn't end for him when your synapses stop shooting those electrical impulses throughout your brain. The story for him doesn't end when your lungs cease to move air in and out to supply oxygen to your body. The story doesn't end. So what faith says in this moment is God can do this. I have no doubt that he can. But you know what? I don't even care if he does. I am going to be faithful. That's what faith in action looks like when you face difficulties like this. And by the way, not just hostile governments, right? But maybe a hostile employer, maybe a hostile family member, even if they live in the house you live in. And sometimes hostility is not even intentional or focused against God. Sometimes we face opposition from other believers, sometimes even well-intentioned, and they're trying to get you to do something that you don't believe God wants you to do. And we talked a few weeks, about, weeks ago about being a conscientious objector, about your conscience has to guide you, even, even if it's guiding you um, and sometimes in ways that maybe not are God's best, but he still honors the fact that you are putting what you think he wants you to do above the pressure that you get from the outside. So God's not saying you won't lose your job. God's not saying your family won't scorn you. He can keep you from losing your job. He can keep your family from scorning you. But even if you do, he'll be with you in it. Even if you lose your job, he will be your Jehovah Jireh, your, your provider. Even if your family turns against you, he will be your faithful father in heaven and he will still provide brothers and sisters more than you lose in this world. He promises, Jesus promises this. He who loses mother, father, brothers, sisters for me will gain more, will gain, I think it's tenfold in the kingdom of heaven. God will provide, God will be there. And even if we lose our lives, the story doesn't end. The story's not over. These are grim things to think about, but this is what faith looks like in these moments, they say, even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. So Nebuchadnezzar was furious again. 
I think they made him more angry than he was when they simply refused to bow because at that point they're saying, we, we're uh, you know, revolting against your rule. But now they're saying, oh, and by the way, your God's not so big after all. So you're not so big after all. Who do you think you are? Makes him very angry with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. These were highly esteemed officials, and now they're his worst enemies. They're traitors. They're treasonous. They're, they're insurrectionists. They're every possible negative thing that could be against his kingdom. So he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I don't know how he did this. I don't know how they were measuring it. I don't know if they had a, you know, one of those heat guns or something to see how hot it got, but they said seven times hotter than usual, and they commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't these, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I'll give you three guesses on who that might be. Some people believe that was the pre-incarnate Jesus present. He could be an angel too. Um, either way, that'd be pretty scary if you're Nebuchadnezzar. You're like, you're a puny little god. What's he going to do? And then you look in there and you're like, oh, I'm starting to see what he's going to do. And I don't like it. So Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Come out, come here. Now, by the way, this, this um, in the original text, this, you don't get capital letters and lowercase letters, but, you know, the way they do it, the translators, they say, you know, he's like, who is your God? You know, and it's lowercase g. And then now he says, the most high God, capital uppercase g. But there does seem to be a shift that he was thinking of their God as one of the puny little gods that he has conquered all over the known world, right? He's got tons of nations Tons of languages under his authority. All of them have their own gods. All of them have been defeated. And now he says, wait, your God must be the most high God. He says, come out, come here. This kind of, for me, reminds me of Lazarus when he's in the tomb and Jesus says, come out, Lazarus. You know, and it turns out he's not dead after all. These guys, they're not dead after all. They should be dead. They're not dead. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and this is the one that gets me the most. There was no smell of fire on them. Guys, we have a fire pit in our backyard, and... Um, I like to go out there and light a fire in the evening when it's cool 
There's no bugs. And I just sit out there and I love being by the fire. And, and here's what I don't do. I don't get in the fire. I've yet to get in the fire. I don't put my clothes in the fire. But you know what I have to do when I come inside? I have to take a shower and change because my hair smells like smoke. My clothes smell like smoke. My wife is a super smeller and she's like, you cannot even be in this bedroom if you smell like smoke. And she's allergic to smoke too. So it's not just that she doesn't like it. She cannot. Like, it's there. And sometimes I have to shampoo my hair twice. How in the world are these men in the furnace and they don't even smell like the smoke of the fire? I love that last part. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him, right? They defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Man, Nebuchadnezzar is actually a pretty sharp theologian. He's a pretty sharp spiritual dude. (laughs) They trusted their God. They defied the king's command and they were willing to give up their lives rather than worship, serve or worship any God except their own. That's the prerequisite to God doing the miracle. Could God have done this miracle if they had bowed down and worshiped that idol? No. No. Because they wouldn't have been thrown into the furnace. Could God have done this miracle if they didn't bow down, but then they're brought before the king and he says, look, I'm giving you one last chance. And they're like, oh, no, no, king, please don't throw us. We, we just didn't realize that the harp and the zither and the lyre and the flute and the whatever we're playing and the cymbals and the music, give us another chance. I wonder even if God would have done this miracle if they had said something like this. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're a horrible man. You, you invaded our homeland. You killed our family and you kidnapped us. The last thing we're going to do is bow down to your statue of the, of the God of your kingdom and some other choice words. And just made it about, we defy you. I think God wouldn't have done the miracle. What they did is they said, this isn't about us and being upset about our country being defeated. This isn't about you and whether you're a good person or not. This is about our relationship with the creator of the universe, with God Most High, with the Holy One of Israel. That's what this is about. And with all due respect, King, we've done everything you've asked us to do very faithfully. So this isn't about rebellion against your kingdom. This is about fidelity to our God. This is about faithfulness. And King Nebuchadnezzar saw that. Therefore, he says, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be burned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Wouldn't that be a great law to have in the United States? No, that would be a horrible law to have in the United States. (laughs) But that's how Nebuchadnezzar saw things. It's 
it's, he saw it in some ways more precisely than we do. If this God really is the greatest God, then it would be a crime against the universe to oppose him. And I think even we as believers, even if we don't want a law like that, sometimes we struggle to even come close to verbalizing that kind of belief because we want to be politically correct, because we want to be inclusive, because, and, we, and, and there's a way we can do those things and still say, this God is the real God and all other gods are nothing before him, which is essentially what he's saying. And then he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, how many of you would like to experience being saved from the furnace. Does anybody be like, I would love to have a miracle like that happen in my life. I would love to have a situation happen where God comes in and he saves the day and it's so obvious and you can't miss it. And, you know, everyone around me says, oh, the, your God is the greatest God ever. I'm going to start following your God. How many, I mean, seriously, would you like to have that happen? How many of you would like to be thrown in the furnace first so that that can happen. There is this tension here in not only this passage and in the Bible, but there is a tension in following God. If you want the miracle, you have to get the snot scared out of you first. To truly have faith is to have no resources left. And we hate having no resources left. To truly have an experience where God's, the evidence of God is so powerful in that moment, then you have to be completely and utterly devoid of any other kind of hope whatsoever. And we hate feeling hopeless. We hate it. So we avoid it every chance we get. I'm in the group with you. This is not, why are you so averse to hardship? I'm saying we're too averse to hardship. We are. Some of you are probably more willing to step into it than I am. And praise be to God for that. But man, it's hard to say, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to go against the grain and I'm going to push back on things, not because I'm a troublemaker, not because I don't like submitting to authority. My goodness, you, if you're a Christian, you have to submit to authority. The caveat is that there is an authority over that authority and you submit to him above everyone else. But if these men had not already submitted to their king who kidnapped them, who killed their family members, who defeated their nation, they would have been some random guys in the crowd who just would have been cut down by soldiers the moment they didn't bow. The only reason this happened is because they had been faithful to their king for so long that they had to be given a second chance. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the Daniel and the, Di- and the lion's den is the exact same kind of story. I won't read it to you, but now it's King Darius. It's not King Nebuchadnezzar. This is a later king. Uh, Darius is, is loving Daniel. Daniel is his greatest leader, his greatest advisor, his greatest governor. He puts three people over all the different 120 leaders in the nation, he puts three men over all of them. And Daniel's so much better than the other two that he's going to put Daniel over those two as well. 
Why? Because he's capable, because he studies, because he's diligent, because he's honest, because he's incorruptible in character, because he honors the king who killed his family, defeated his nation, and kidnapped him out of Judah and forced him into this kind of perverse political slavery. Daniel's faithful to him. And when you read these stories, and I don't know if you guys remember this when we studied Nehemiah. Nehemiah was in the same situation. He's serving a foreign king who had destroyed his nation, who had killed his family members, who had you know, taken him out of his home and put him in service because he was capable. These men seem to love their king. Daniel seems to legitimately like Darius. But he always puts God first. So he loves Daniel. Darius loves Daniel. He's going to put him in charge of everything. And so people are jealous. So he has enemies. He has enemies because he's faithful, because he's good, because he's diligent. And so these men conspire and they secretly go to Darius and say, hey, Darius, you know how amazing you are? You know that, right? You know you're pretty awesome, right? What if for, for a month no one could pray to anyone or anything except you? Now, this is like next level, uh, next level psychosis. Not that you have to pray to my God, but you have to pray to me. Now, Darius, somewhere in the back of his mind, he must know. He can't hear their prayers, right? He has no clue what people are asking him. He, he knows he can't help them. He knows that he's nothing. He is not a God. But he says, you know what, gentlemen? That sounds like a fine idea. Let's do that. Now, these men who came to Darius to do this, they knew they knew they were setting a trap for Daniel because they knew that three times a day he would go out onto his balcony, he would get down on his knees facing Jerusalem, and he would pray to the God of Israel. They knew he did. This is the same guy, remember the first test, will you honor God in the daily ongoing stuff? Will you eat the right foods? Will you connect with the Lord and seek him out and pray to him? Will you honor uh, the things that he honors, in this case, Jerusalem? Daniel's doing these things daily, multiple times a day. And they know it. So when it's time to, to pray, Daniel goes out just like he does every other day. He gets down on his knees, he faces Jerusalem, and he prays to the God of Israel. Not only the God of Israel, but the God of the universe. The God that he knows saved his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so many years before in that fiery furnace. So these men come to Darius and say, hey, Darius, remember how you passed that law? He's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. They say, well, guess what? Daniel is praying to his God. And you can almost feel in the story, you can almost feel Darius having this epiphany, like, I've been tricked. And now the person that is my best advisor my greatest governor probably likes Daniel a whole lot, not just because of what he gets from him. He's probably just a great guy to be around. He's probably the kind of guy that when you're around him that you actually feel better about yourself because he's so amazing, right? Daniel is the coolest guy in the Bible other than Jesus. He's amazing. He's amazing. 
And he's like, what have I done? And they say, just as a reminder, king, you know, according to the law of, 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 of the Persians, you know, you, you can't go back on this because we wrote it down. This wasn't just like you asked for something. Like, we wrote it down. So for 30 days, no one can do this. And Daniel's doing it. Oh, and the punishment was to be thrown in a den of lions. So in chapter 6 of Daniel, in verse 15, Remember your majesty, according to the laws of Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And here's Darius. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Such a different dynamic than the one with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Darius is hoping that the God of Israel, the God of Judah, the God that Daniel serves, will be greater than him. He wants him to be. He loves Daniel, I think. And I think Daniel loves him. It's so uh, intriguing. You know, sometimes the, the people that end up kind of coming against you, they do it, I, I mentioned this earlier, but they don't, they're not doing it on purpose. They feel caught. They feel stuck. They feel like they have no other choice. Right? I, I can imagine a scenario. I, I, this is, our, our state rep sent me a birthday card and texted me happy birthday on my birthday. I think he likes me. I like him. I can imagine one day, and this is not about him, but I can imagine a scenario where one day the state of Massachusetts passes some law that says certain things can't be said out loud in the state of Massachusetts that are in here. You know what will happen that first Sunday, right? Like that first Sunday, that's what we're going to preach on. And he's going to hear about it and be like, oh no, not Stephen. You know, I can imagine a scenario like that. And maybe not me, maybe it's someone, but you get the idea. Oh, I wasn't thinking of Stephen when we passed that. Or I wasn't thinking of so-and-so when we passed that. And it's not just laws, it's all kinds of things. But he had remorse. But he also was willing to hope a little bit, to trust a little bit that just maybe this God that Daniel served could save him. So the stone is brought, it's placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. He could not sleep. This man is depressed. Right? He won't eat. He won't watch Netflix. He is not even able to sleep. He's depressed. Like, when you're really sad... You go get ice cream and you watch Netflix. But when you're really, really sad, you can't eat ice cream and you can't watch Netflix. You see what I'm saying? He is in agony over this. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answers, may the king live forever. Those must have been the most beautiful words that king has ever heard. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, in God's sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found in him because he had trusted in his God. 
in all the little children's books, the lions are like sleeping on Daniel's lap and he's petting them, right? And I'm thinking those little children's illustrators probably have the right idea. And miracle of miracles, there was no cat hair on any of his clothes. <laughs> and at the king's command, the men who falsely accused Daniel, falsely accused is an interesting phrase there, isn't it? They were totally accurate in their accusations, right? They were completely accurate. But the whole scenario was contrived in falsehood and lies and, and just so much going wrong there. They were brought in and thrown in the lion's den along with their wives and children. Wouldn't it be awesome if your enemies and their wives and their children were all put to death? Every No, that would be a horrible idea. We don't want that. But Darius knew something that we struggle to know. And here's what he says. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, People must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. How cool would that be if there were people in your life that were like, oh, I've decided to worship the God of Becca. I've decided to worship the God of Adrian. Oh, I worship the God of Horacio. Right? How cool would that be? Like, his name has your name in it. That's amazing. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. How many of you would love to have that decree with your name in it from people in power? Anyone? You know it's a trick question now, right? But how many of you want to be thrown in the lion's den? Man, it's so hard. It's so hard. It's so scary. Guys, and, and I'll, just, I'll just close with this. There are miracles that are waiting for you, okay? There's the evidence of God's power waiting for you. God's provision is waiting for you. God's deliverance is waiting for you. God's healing is waiting for you. God's, uh, God's uh, just all these, you know, not for us to take vengeance, but sometimes there's vengeance of God waiting for you when we are faithful to him, when you're willing to be put in the furnace, when you're be willing to be put with the lions, when you're be willing to say, God can do this, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to do it anyway. When you're willing to put your financial security on the line, when you're willing to put your reputation on the line, when you're willing to put some relationships on the line, when you're willing to put yourself on the line, these miracles are waiting for you. And you cannot get these kind of miracles without that kind of faith. You know, maybe one day you'll just be caught up in something and it just feels random and God comes through for you. But these kind of miracles are when you explicitly say, I'm going to trust the Lord even if X, Y, Z happens. And that is such a scary and difficult thing to do. I struggle with it. I know you struggle with it. But here's the thing. The day may come where we have to make more of those choices. But don't go home sad. Don't go home scared. Go home courageous. Go home knowing that if and when that day comes, that you already have 
lined up for you all the miracles that you need to get through it. Go home knowing that no matter what happens and how bad it gets, and even if you don't survive it, that on the other side of that, there's something so much greater. As Paul says, I do not consider our present troubles worth comparing with the riches of glory that are available to us in Jesus Christ. Right? It's no comparison. You don't have anything to be afraid of. And if you're a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent and you worry about those kids, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be worried for them because you know what? There's some really amazing miracles in store for them if they put their trust in Jesus Christ, if they are willing to stand firm, right? I mean, we all worry that our kids won't put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a different concern. But if they do, then you don't have to worry about what the world will throw at them. It will be hard, okay? I had someone tell me this week about, he was talking about something. He's a friend of mine who's a pastor. He said, you know, this could be really hard, uh, and I would hate for you to have to go through something hard. And I said, look, I'm not worried about going through something hard. That's probably the best thing that could happen to any of us is to go through something hard, right? Because how else is God going to show up and show out? How else is our character going to grow? How else are we going to know, not prove to God, but prove to ourselves that we can be faithful unless it's hard? So don't fear the hard, right? Don't fear what man can do. Don't fear what our enemy, the devil, can do. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in God's faithfulness and rest in that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I, you know, even coming in this morning, for me, just feeling a little, I don't know, a little anxious, uh, knowing that you've called me, through your word, to preach a message that I know I don't live up to. And I think knowing that most of us could admit that we don't live up to that's a hard that's a hard moment but God you're up to it you have to be Lord we need you to be up for it we need you to put that kind of faith in us because we have no ability to muster it within ourselves so God this is one of those moments where we come we have we have no resources within ourselves to have that kind of faith we have no hope within ourselves to have that kind of courage. But God, you do. You have it, and you have it, and you have it. You have it uh, beyond measure, Lord, for us. Because it's your desire, it's your intention, it is our destiny through Jesus Christ to be like him who is willing to face the pain of death out of faithfulness to you and out of the joy that was on the other side. So God, we don't go home today sad or discouraged or scared. Lord, we go home looking to the joy that's on the other side. God, we go home and, and we go home with the expectation that you're going to provide what we need. Not, not in some kind of uh, passive way on our part. Lord, help us not to be passive but to continue to seek you for it. And of course, Lord, this brings us back full circle 
my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. And your love is better than life. So Lord, today we go home hoping, trusting, believing. Lord, we go home resting. And that in our rest, we seek you for everything that we need. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.